Hello and welcome to The Roadmap, a Bristow's produced podcast about all things tech law. My name is Annika Pohl and I'm an associate at Bristow's. Joining me today are Toby Haddon and Charlie Hawes. Toby is a senior associate in our brand's design and copyright team and advises on all aspects of copyright and intellectual property rights. In particular, Toby has provided targeted advice to a number of our clients on copyright for generative AI models. This week, Toby gave a presentation on generative AI to the International Literary and Artistic Association 2023 Congress in Paris. Hi, Toby. Welcome back to London. How was your time in Paris at the Congress? Hi, Annika. Uh, It was very nice. Thank you. I wish I was still there. Not here with us? Well, that's a good second best. (laughs) The second expert that we have on today's episode of The Roadmap is Charlie. Charlie's a senior associate in our technology and data protection teams, and he's advised extensively on the impact and regulatory challenges and risks associated with generative AI models for our clients. It's always amazing to talk to you, Charlie, and we're very lucky to have you with us today. Thanks for taking the time to chat to us. Hi, Annika. Not a problem at all. Thrilled to be here. At Bristow's, we've been very busy advising our clients on generative AI and thought we'd take a break, get together and just chat about the top five legal risks that we've identified and also provide some really practical steps that you can take away today and perhaps implement in your organization if you want to. As I'm sure many of our listeners would agree, generative AI, foundation models and large language models, which we may refer to during this conversation as LLMs, are the technology of the moment. There's a new generation of machine learning tools that can generate high quality content like text, images, software code, all from a natural language text prompt provided by the user of the tool. As of a couple of weeks ago, Anthropic's text-to-text models like Claude can now analyze documents with up to 75,000 words, which is roughly the length of The Great Gatsby. Text-to-image products like Midjourney and Stable Diffusion can generate images in seconds, and text-to-code models like Codex and Polycoder will help reduce some of the time-consuming and laborious portions of coding. We are also increasingly seeing generative AI tools being embedded in Microsoft Office and Google Workspace, and we're continuing to see a plethora of products and innovation in this space. Before we kick off, we want to acknowledge that there are different generative AI tools that are available for users and they broadly fit into two categories, which are enterprise APIs and consumer web interfaces. Charlie and Toby, could you briefly set the scene for our listeners on the difference between an enterprise API and consumer web interface? Actually, um, it's probably a good chance for me to ask Charlie this question because I always get them confused and I know that he doesn't. Um, And I, I think one of the key issues is that if you're accessing through an enterprise API as opposed to a consumer web interface, uh, the large language model sometimes reserves the right to use the data that you upload or input to uh, improve its services. Um, And it's the other way around if you're on the consumer web interface. Please don't tell me that I've got that wrong, Charlie. Uh, No, Toby. That's certainly a a fair description of the approach at OpenAI. Uh, AI take uh, to um, the terms and conditions that apply to their web interface and API, respectively. Uh, As many of our listeners will be aware, API stands for Application Programming Interface, and that's essentially the uh, back-end means by which a software developer can uh, access the models directly, if you like, and instruct them uh, via software to do uh, a broader range of of tasks than uh, a consumer can do by interacting with them via web interface 
um, most specifically of or of most interest uh, for our purposes, uh, a web uh, API. An enterprise API allows you to uh, upload uh, large uh, tranches of uh, fine-tuning data uh, to uh, to the model in a way that uh, a web interface uh, doesn't. So the API is just going to give you uh, more flexibility, uh, more uh, configurability, uh, and more uh, optionality uh, to um, to fine-tune and, and, and have the model do precisely what, what you want. Great. Now that we've set the scene, let's move on to the legal risks. One of the questions that we're asked very often is how can an organization protect its confidential information when using generative AI tools? Toby, what are some of the confidentiality risks associated with using or integrating generative AI tools in a business? Thanks, Annika. I mean, this is actually quite straightforward in a way. The clear and obvious risk is that if uh, confidential information or trade secrets, for example, are uploaded into a large language model, for example, by an employee of an organization, then that effectively is a disclosure to a third party and may render it not confidential. Those sort of consequences would obviously be greater if the large language model in question, I nearly said chat GPT there, but obviously there are other large <laughs> language models available. Um, the consequences would be greater where they reserve the right to continue to use those inputs to improve and develop their own products and services. And I think as a corollary to that as well, um, you don't necessarily know how secure the large language model keeps that information itself. So you're possibly a hostage to fortune in that respect. So in that sense, confidentiality is a risk. Um, and I think what that risk is, is, is pretty clear. One of the more widely publicized risks is that actually the generative AI tool can produce incorrect facts, sometimes referred to as hallucinations. Charlie, we were recently talking about a rather unfortunate chap who used a generative AI model to prepare a legal brief that he filed in court, which cited completely made up cases. Yeah, thank, thanks, Annika. And I, I guess this is, you know, we, we've been talking to clients, enterprise clients, uh, a great deal about this specific risk. And, and I think it is a very uh, dangerous risk um, for many clients. So hallucinations, as you say, simply refers to uh, the model's output uh, being uh, inaccurate uh, or in some way. Um, the real difficulty is um, with most of the text-to-text models, at least, much of the output is going to be correct. But occasionally you will get um, an incorrect or wrong fact uh, intermingled uh, with the rest of the output. And that's uh, a big risk for enterprise organizations where you have employees who uh, may be uh, relying on uh, the textual output of, of, of some of these models. Um, of course, this goes to what large language models are, which are uh, lang natural language generation machines, if I can put it like that. They're great at producing plausible natural language text they quote unquote understand the rules of grammar and so on but they're not looking up facts they're not they don't hold uh, uh, the data a database of their training data um, in their in their working memory if, if you like so uh, it's very easy to be uh, uh, lulled into assuming they're always going to give you accurate information when that just isn't the case I can interject there maybe as well, because I uh, asked ChatGPT about myself vaingloriously, and 
about 70% of the output was actually inaccurate information. Um, that perhaps isn't surprising because uh, as a large language model, there's probably not much data on me that it can provide, but it does illustrate the point. Um, I think it said that I'd been a research scientist in California, um, but the reality is that AI doesn't know anything and we should be slightly cautious about anthropomorphizing it. And I know that's an argument which has gained a lot of traction. Um, it ultimately, as, as Charlie sort of alluded to, simply predicts the next token in a sequence certainly in the case of um, text and code generative AI, or it adds noise to the code um, in the case of diffusion models for images um, from which those images are approximated. This neatly leads us on to sort of at the third risk, which is obviously generative AI models have data inputted into them and then they produce an output based on that. Often employees include personal information, sort of like you did, Toby, um, as part of their prompt or their input. And they can ask quite specific questions. Uh, what are some of the data protection risks arising from this, Charlie? Thanks, Annika. Well, in a sense, this is quite similar to um, the, co the confidentiality risk that Toby was discussing a few minutes ago. Very simply, if you have employees who are uploading personal data in prompts, or perhaps uh, as, as part of a fine-tuning data set, if you're using the model for an, an API, it's going to be very unlikely that the scope of the permissions that you're processing that personal data under is going to anticipate uh, the, um, the processing activity uh, that corresponds to the uploading of that personal data to, to the model. Um, and indeed, you know, any further processing uh, by it. Um, I think, obviously, that risk is amplified uh, many times over in relation to special category data, so that's sensitive data, uh, including uh, data relating to health conditions um, and so on. Um, there is a further data protection risk as well, which is to do with um, what the uh, model provider itself may be doing with that data. So it's not simply that you don't, you might not have the permission to upload the data to 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 the model. It's also that the model provider may then go, go on to do other things with with the personal data that you also haven't um, an, an, anticipated. There are also, of course, uh, specific uh, machine learning related risks that are already regulated uh, under GDPR and, and other data protection regulation, which uh, you may uh, need to keep in mind. But I'm thinking in particular of, uh, of automated uh, de de decision making. It's quite interesting um, because historically I've given quite a lot of advice to clients who harvest data from the web and invariably their prime concern has always been around data protection and privacy, uh, no doubt because of the very meaty fines that are attached to it. Um, but that is actually changing now and we're seeing um, new risks uh, being focused on as well. Yeah, that's right, Toby. And I, you know, and I suppose I would just add that many of the model providers themselves uh, recognize these risks. And indeed, if you, if you look at what, for example, OpenAI have been doing uh, in relation to trying to control some of these risks uh, from, from the point of view of the model provider, um, a lot has been done uh, over recent months, uh, and I suspect this will continue to be uh, an area where uh, model providers continue to make it, if you if you like, more and more difficult 
for um, end users to uh, indiscriminately use uh, their models to process uh, personal data. One of the risks that we've also identified is the copyright IP infringement risk, Toby. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about this risk that's a bit more specific to generative AI? Sure. Um, so this is one of the risks, really, that is coming to the fore. There's now litigation um, pending in the US and the UK. Uh, copyright was always a risk which people seem to sort of accept and think that they could mitigate whilst focusing on privacy and other risks, but it's definitely more centre stage now. Um, I like to think of copyright as, as a sort of a holy trinity of three things when it comes to generative AI. Uh, the first is the input. So most people will know that, you know, an AI model needs lots of data to train it. So you put in data in those form of inputs. And the question is, when you do that, you make a copy of all the material. And of course, that begs the question, well, are you infringing copyright if you do that? Um, and there is a big debate now between right holders on the one hand and AI developers and users on the other hand as to whether that is a copyright infringement and whether the right holders are entitled to charge a fee for it. Uh, the second limb of the Holy Trinity actually stems on from that, which is even if it is an infringement in principle, are there any exceptions that apply? Um, now, the exception landscape is sort of fragmented. So there's different exceptions that apply in different nations. In the US, they have fair use. In Japan, they have a very, very broad exception, which basically allows you to text and data mine as you wish without payment and without worry. Um, there is one in the EU. The UK finds itself between a bit of a rock and a hard place because uh, they presently have only a very narrow exception, which relates to research for non-commercial purposes. Um, there have been discussions at governmental level uh, with stakeholders to try and expand this out. One attempt failed um, earlier in the year. They've gone back to the drawing board. Um, I'm not convinced that the sort of politicians have got themselves properly organised um, uh, to sort of push this over the line. So I think we'll have to see where that goes. And finally, the third element of the Holy Trinity is outputs. So you put all the data into the machine, you type in your prompt, you push the button, you get the result. Um, does copyright subsist in those outputs? That's one question. And a second question is, do those outputs infringe copyrights in any of the inputs that we use to train them? Um, generally speaking, because the outputs are statistical approximations, they don't really look like anything. So that's um, something which seems less likely, although there are instances where images have been produced which very closely resemble uh, some of the outputs that they're trained on. So there's certainly some issues there to be talked through. But in a nutshell, I would say when you're thinking about copyright and generative AI, they're the three key issues and the three key debates at the moment. The final risk that we have on our radar is about future-proofing your business. At Bristers, we're watching the regulatory landscape very closely. There has been quite a bit of movement recently on regulating AI, particularly in the EU and the UK. Charlie, could you please give us an overview of what is happening? Thanks, Annika. Uh, it's a it's a big subject. It, it, you're right. It's moving it's moving pretty quickly. But at the uh, the the highest the highest level of abstraction, um, firstly, I should say there is some regulation of AI, uh, or if you like, already. Um, notably, the GDPR, which has some specific uh, sections, as I've mentioned earlier, relating to uh, machine learning, um, automated decision making, uh, and, and profiling. In particular, it also has some general provisions which um, uh, can apply to machine learning. I'm thinking of uh, its fairness provisions and their relationship with uh, 
the issue of bias in machine learning and its transparency provisions in relation to the issue of explainability in the context of uh, machine learning. I'm also going to give the tiniest fraction of a shout out to uh, the uh, um, software as a medical device community. AI used in the context of software as medical devices is already subject to uh, a a regime of um, standards and 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 guidance and law that um, is 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 of course very relevant for uh, software as device manufacturers and I think it's going to be very interesting to see uh, over the next two years the extent to which um, that existing domain of knowledge becomes useful and starts to map across to uh, to um, other areas of, uh, of legislation and, uh, and AI regulation. Of course, the, the big beast in this space um, that is uh, rapidly coming down the, the pipeline and, and, and kind of dominates the landscape is the EU's AI Act. It's currently three years away from being passed. It's going to regulate, quote unquote, high risk uh, AI. Um, it's going to set the standards both literally and metaphorically um, for best practice uh, in uh, the machine learning and, and AI regulatory space. It, it will be very uh, influential, um, uh, but it is, I would say, uh, surprisingly limited in its, in its application. We find a lot of clients uh, assume that, uh, for example, coming from the financial services space, assume that it's going to apply to them. That's actually not the case. Um, and then uh, just coming to what's going on in the UK, so the UK has uh, taken over the last few years um, an approach that uh, they they don't want to have regulation specifically relating to AI. They want to make the government's um, stated position is that it wants to make the UK a pro-innovation uh, in, environment. Um, uh, regulators to lead in verticals, no big new horizontal legislation. That is that does seem to be in the process of changing right now, um, given that um, the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak uh, has um, become very interested in literally in recent weeks um, in uh, all of the conversations around um, uh, existential risks relating to AI. There's talk of some kind of international treaty later late, later this year. Um, so it could well be that the UK regulatory position is is, is changing. But I suppose the key message for our clients um, is that uh, um, there is legislation coming down the track uh, on AI. You at least need to assess um, whether the EU's AI Act, which is ter- extraterritorial in nature, is going to apply to you. Um, and, and you need to be um, mindful of the fact that uh, uh, standards uh, and, uh, and so on uh, will be introduced in relation to AI uh, over the coming years. That um, strikes me, Charlie, that you know the UK is seeking to plough its own path and present itself as a hub for AI development and innovation, and in doing so, adopt quite a light touch to regulation. But that's going to be quite a challenge in a global marketplace where I think businesses will tend to organise their affairs around the sort of most regulated jurisdiction that's most important to them. So I often wonder, um, you know, how that UK approach will pan out. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, I imagine that there might be scope in the UK to do some sort of small scale exercises like sandboxing in terms of attracting development and investment. 
but I haven't really thought it through. Yes, no, I, th- I think I think that's right, Toby. And, and certainly, sandboxing is 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 absolutely um, one of the items on um, on the policy agenda for for the government. I, I, I certainly think it's true that the UK's position has become more of an outlier in recent months, as if you like the regulatory conversation uh, around AI has been captured uh, and increasingly revolves around. Um, uh, more uh, AGI uh, existential type risk discussions, you know, driven by the rise of generative AI um, and and, uh, and 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 Chat GPT, and so really now the regulatory conversation around AI is in a very different place internationally um, uh, and in the US from from where it was um, six six months ago. There are a couple of other risks that we haven't had the opportunity to touch on in this particular podcast episode, for example, website terms of use. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right, Annika. There are, there are others. I mean, there's a whole raft of them, but what we've tried to do is, is focus on on the key ones. Uh, now that we've gone through those key legal risks, there are fortunately some really practical steps that we think our listeners could implement to mitigate some of those risks. So one that is front of mind, and we've been working with quite a number of our clients to implement, is a company acceptable use policy. Charlie, could you please walk us through how an acceptable use policy may assist an organisation to manage some of the legal risks posed by generative AI? Sure, Annika, thanks very much. And uh, as you say, uh, we've actually been very busy in recent months with um, crafting generative AI acceptable use policies for a whole range of clients. Um, uh, the, the risk, as you've stated, is uh, an organization will have a lot of employees potentially who are using generative AI products and services in the workplace for work-related tasks. Um, and uh, the, uh, the organization's legal team, management and so on, um, won't have visibility of that necessarily. Uh, and and all kinds of risks of the kinds that we've been discussing uh, might be cropping up as as a result. I mean, what we're finding in those policies is, uh, generally speaking, some limited prohibitions uh, are, are often a good idea. You know, confidential information, for example, controls around uh, data protection and uh, the upload of 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 of, of personal data. Uh, I think another area that we are advising people to look really closely at is uh, the terms and conditions that are going to apply um, that are, are provided by any particular product and, uh, or service. Uh, in particular, many of them have different tiers of subscription depending on uh, whether you're a, a consumer uh, or a, uh, an enterprise um, subscriber. And of course, as you'd expect, the enterprise terms often give uh, the, uh, particularly the IP rights, um, the IP rights in the enterprise terms will uh, be more, uh, if you like, appropriate for, for, an, en- for an enterprise uh, use case. Another really practical thing that our listeners could potentially implement is some training within their organization. Toby, can you give a bit of an overview of what that may look like? Sure. Um... In many ways, I think that this is either sort of other side of the coin of, of uh, a policy that, of the kind that Charlie's just talked about. Um, and certainly it goes hand in hand with an acceptable use policy and should probably be cast in reasonably broad terms and, and be broadly aligned with it. Thinking perhaps a little bit more specifically, um, there are 
particular things that a business can do. For example, create a risk assessment process where they determine activities to be low, medium or high risk, um, labelling um, works and material that are created uh, accordingly, and possibly you know, having a system in place where when a high risk uh, material is identified to ensure that it's escalated to perhaps someone who has supervision over these things internally and, and risk oversight. I think that's likely to be particularly relevant where um, AI models are routinely used by a business. So I think there's some of the practical steps that people can take to support and augment their acceptable use policy. Once you've done that risk assessment as well, you may want to then start to look at a practical step that you can implement a little bit more externally. So your supply code of conduct. Uh, Charlie, what are some of the considerations there? Sure. Very simply, whatever your employees might be doing, your suppliers might be doing too. And, And I'd say this is particularly relevant if you are using uh, software developer contractors um, just to control the risks around their use of uh, text-to-code models. So uh, if you have a supplier policy already in place, what we're seeing is a lot of clients who are taking some of the content of their employee-facing policy, adapting it slightly and putting it into the supplier policy uh, as, as well. Uh, and, and, and indeed, if, if you've uh, crafted your supplier-facing documentation appropriately, it may just be that the content of the supplier policy uh, finds its way in, into the contract and is, 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 in effect, a set of um, contractual obligations as well. And then the last one, which is sort of an ongoing risk mitigation step for an organisation, is just to be aware of the regulatory changes. It's a really fast-growing area There's a lot of change in movement from a legal perspective, particularly how government and other organisations are responding. Uh, We're seeing litigation in the US, as you mentioned, Toby. Uh, So sort of staying on top of that and being active, whether that's personally or through using external services. Yeah, that's right, Annika. And we are uh, tracking all of these uh, developments uh, very carefully. So if, 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 if if you do need any kind of horizon spotting uh, or tracking service that's something we can very easily provide toby and charlie thank you for chatting with me today it's been a real pleasure to have you both thank you yes pleasure thank you if you liked what you heard please subscribe download and share this podcast would love to make this podcast as interactive as possible if you have a particular interest area, any thoughts, suggestions, or general feedback on this or future episodes, please get in touch with us at theroadmapatbristos.com or use the hashtag theroadmappod. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with the next episode soon.